0: Welcome to Ask the Expert. It's a brief, informative, and lively discussion with experts in type 1 diabetes and related interdisciplinary research We're recording the event. We're gonna post it later on our Sugar Science YouTube channel. And if you have any questions for our guests, please feel free to add them as we're speaking in the chat and we'll answer them at the very end or if something's pressing, raise your hand and we'll, we'll answer it right away. Um, okay, so today I have with me Dr. Cassie Robertson coming to us from UVA. Um, and they, uh, she, along with her colleagues, just published a really fascinating nature genetics paper. Um, I have been sort of going over it uh, and, and really enjoying it. I love that they went back into data, um, the title of the, and, and, and found some really interesting things there. Um, the title of the paper, which was published on June 14, 2021, is "Fine Mapping, Transancestral and Genomic Analyses Identify Causal Variants, Cells, Genes, and Drug Targets for Type 1 Diabetes." And um, so, welcome! I can't wait to talk about this paper and your work. And again, you know, and congratulations on your uh, shiny new PhD. So. Thank you. So why don't you take a a minute and give us a little
1: bit um, of a background, a bio about yourself? Sure. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I am, um, I just finished my PhD last week, actually. So um, my background is originally in statistics, biostatistics, and kind of has migrated more towards um, genetics. So first statistical genetics, and now really, really in kind of in the weeds of genetics. Um, and the past five years, I've been working with Steve Rich and his group at the University of Virginia studying um, type 1 diabetes. And in January, I'll start in Steve Parker's lab at um, University of Michigan, also continuing to work in um, the genetics of, of type 1 diabetes and, and also a little bit type 2 diabetes. So um, so I'm kind of gearing up for a career in, uh, in diabetes <laughs> or the genetics of diabetes, I think
0: Yes, it's fantastic. Exciting. And there, you know that's a highly um, that requires requires a high level of um, detail-oriented work and sort of skill in analysis. So um, uh, it's uh, it seems like you've got some fantastic training out of the rich lab and and I can't wait to see what you do in the next. Um, in your next situation. So that's going to be great. So do you want to just walk us through the paper or your work or what? whatever yeah. you're interested in talking about? We're interested in talking with you Sure. About. Yeah.
1: So I put together a, a slide a presentation, kind of walking through a, a subset of the paper, because um, I think there's a couple of different components to it, and it would have taken a bit too long to go through all of it. But yeah. um, so I'll go ahead and share my screen. Does that sound good? Yeah, perfect. Go ahead. It's ready. I'm gonna. So as you said, the the title of the paper is "Fine Mapping Transcendental Ancestral and Genomic Analyses Identify Causal Variants, Cell Types, and um, Drug Targets for Type One Diabetes." And so I guess I wanted to just first acknowledge, um, as you had mentioned, it's a, co- a collaborative effort. Um, this, this project was a collaboration between our, our lab and people at UVA, as well as um, uh, the John Todd lab at uh, Oxford, uh, University of Oxford in the UK, and um, was co led by another PhD student named G- Jamie Inchaw, who is also a kind of a statistician, statistical geneticist, and, um, and now a statistician in industry. But, um, and there's actually many other, many other investigators that kind of contributed. Particularly um, by uh, providing samples um, to the to the study. So I'll just talk a little bit, just to give give a little background about um, kind of what we knew about uh, the genetic basis of t two um leading up to my thesis and kind of this this work, this project in general. And then I'll talk about two components of the of the paper, um, and then kind of inspired actually a lot by by some of the State of the science lectures that you have have put together uh, talk a little bit about how uh, this can be relevant to two d treatment and prevention. I think because. Human genetics is kind of like, it's a very big problem. And sometimes it's hard to think about um, because it, it, it keeps demonstrating that the disease is really multifactorial and not yeah. a single gene kind of disease. So I think kind of watching those conversations with with some of the more experimental scientists, it, it's clear that it can be a little bit frustrating or confusing or maybe overwhelming to think about, like, how do we, how do we incorporate, you know, 70 genetic regions or 100 regions um, into a kind of unified understanding of a disease and how could that be useful? So I'll talk briefly about that. It's not really my expertise, but it's what I'm thinking about in kind of moving forward. So sounds great. Yeah. So I guess the foundation of this is that your risk of developing type one diabetes is at least in part, due to genetic factors and that you can kind of see this in the data in a couple of different ways. One of them is there was a recent paper. Well, I guess it wasn't that recent now, but 2008, there was a a New England Journal paper showing that if you follow monozygotic twins over time, so identical twins, you you see that in 65% of twins with one twin having type 1 diabetes, the other one develops it by the age of 65. so it's uh, it's there's certainly a genetic component. There's also environmental factors, which I think some of your um, speakers have have touched on. But um, we focus on the genetic basis. And so I like to just briefly, because I don't, I think the audience seems is, is pretty broad. Just kind of frame what does it mean for a, gene- a disease to be genetic, or um, you know, how does genetics actually uh, influence uh, human traits? And just a reminder that the genome is has about 3.4 billion base pairs and it's divided across 23 chromosomes and at, a, at almost all of those base pairs, the genetic sequence is is basically identical between two people. but about one in every thousand base pairs, um, if you look at two people, there'll be subtle differences. so often a single nucleotide, although there's also um, a lot of structural variation, bigger changes. but um, I love this in general, slide. it should be it should be broadcast, more
0: globally so we can
1: all focus on what we have in common (laughs) yeah yeah right and yeah that's it i i took this slide out um but i showed another slide if you look at this same kind of figure but compare across animals like there's a lot more differences so if you look at within humans we're we're very very similar But nonetheless, there's about 20 million variants that kind of commonly can differ between people in global populations. And most of these are shared across populations. So if you look at a population in one continent and then another, you know, you're gonna see both the same sets of alleles in both of those groups, but um, maybe at different frequencies. So kind of, like you said, we're very similar, but there are these couple million, 20 million or so places where we can differ. And so our, um, our work is to try and understand how do these genetic variants that are common in the population, how do they shape human traits and in particular your risk of disease? And then um, there also are more rare genetic variants that can have more profound effects on your risk of disease. So, you know, Mendelian traits, for example, are tend to be caused by very rare um, genetic variation. But the type of study that we've done in this manuscript um, is really get aimed at trying to understand the more common, you know, low to, to, to common frequency variants. Um, the ones that you'll see multiple times, many times in a population. Yeah. And so the genetic uh, kind of basis of TND has been of interest for, you know, probably 50 years or so, maybe longer. And at this point, we actually do understand quite a bit about what genetic factors contribute. And the strongest genetic factor that contribute to T1D risk are HLA and insulin. And then there's these other um, immune kind of immune regulator genes that that have been identified, but it really wasn't until recently with with the um, kind of technology uh, developments that enabled high throughput genotyping that we were able to map really systematically the genetic variation contributing to T1D. And so in the past few decades or, 15 years or so, we've identified many, many more genetic variants that associate with 2ND. When I started my PhD, it was about 60, probably a little under 60 genetic regions. Um, And I'll show today we kind of expanded that a bit in our work. And so, this concept of genome wide association study is actually pretty straightforward. Um, It's enabled by these microarray technologies. Uh, You basically genotype many, many people who have the disease and who who don't, and uh, using these high throughput genotyping tools, and then you can kind of systematically compare the frequency of of genetic variants in those two groups. And using this approach, we can kind of draw these pretty systematic and robust. So if you do it again on a new set of people, it will give you a pretty similar map of the genetic basis of the disease. And so that's what we've done um, with type one diabetes. And so we develop, we get these maps, but the the next step is, you know, you hope that understanding the genetic variation that contributes to a trait will help you to understand the, the biology underlying the trait. And so kind of, I think in a geneticist's ideal world, or their ideal framework is that you start with this DNA variant, and then that kind of points to genes or proteins that are important. Which then um, helps us, you know, leads us to cellular processes and then kind of a a way to understand how the physiology is affected by the genetic variation. Problem is, so so that does work and and it has been done um, for both complex and rare diseases, but there are some kind of major challenges that that make that more difficult than maybe kind of this idealized uh, framework would like. So the first one is that a lot um, there’s a lot of there’s something called leakage disequilibrium in human populations or really any outward population where um, genetic variants that are close to each other travel together, so and that’s just a function of uh, meiosis and um, and and the fact that, you know, you need recombination between two variants to separate them um, on a chromosome. And so what that means is if you uh, if you have a region, and I'll explain these these plots in a second. But if you have a region of association, you have a lot of variants that all are associated with the trait, and it's very hard to distinguish, you know, which one is actually driving the association. Right. Um, and so that's that's sort of our first like major challenge in this um, in this task of taking the genetic map and 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 inferring and understanding biology from it. Um, and I'll explain kind of. A little bit more how this works but and then the second challenge is that um, even if you can do a pretty good job of differentiating the variants that are likely causally related to disease most of them don't actually overlap protein coding sequences so it's hard to go from variant to gene you can kind of you know you can guess or you can nominate the most likely uh, genes mediating the effect but um, to know with certainty is actually turns out a very a pretty challenging task. Um, and so just to highlight sort of in this region of association, so, so these plots are showing um, basically a stretch of chromosome and each point is a genetic variation. So one of those, you know, one, uh, 0.1% of the genome that differs between people um, and uh, the height of the this, of this point is how strongly it is associated, associated with T1D. And so you can see all these red ones are basically equally associated with T and and we don't know which one is causal. But we can we can uh, we can take a guess that probably one of these is, is causal at least at least one, possibly more than one. But if you look at actually how they overlap, these are the genes in this region. Many of them are in between genes, um, and so we call these intergenic. And and then many others are are intronic. So and of course they're overlapping multiple genes. So. Um, so just from this map, it actually is, is pretty difficult to determine which of these what five or so genes here are are causally related to the disease.
0: Yeah, and those yeah. genes are
1: typically found, you know, in which cell types? Oh, yeah. So um, so the expression of the genes across cell types is is something we can can look at. So. Um, uh, I don't know about these specific genes. So I know IKZF4 is a transcription factor that's, I, I believe, important for um, kind of lymphocyte uh, differentiation. I'm not sure yeah. about the other ones. It's
0: just curious uh, because like some, you know, there's this whole interplay at the cellular level. There's like the beta cell and then there's the immune cell population and like how there's always been that whole conversation about, yeah. is it you know is it murder or suicide is the beta cell inherently yeah. dysfunctional yeah. and the immune system just doing its job or is the immune system going rogue so then it's like oh well which yeah. genes are? that's just sort of out of curiosity like which genes are
1: d- yeah. effective where you know right yeah so people can do um pe- well you so people have done analyses where you take all the all the associations and look like kind of in the region and look at all the genes and basically look for like enrichment of um, pathways or expression of genes in a given cell type yeah, um, relative to cell other speak. cell types. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and so I think when you do that, you do tend mm-hmm. to see that um, there's more enrichment in like lymphocyte genes that are expressed in, in lymphocytes. Um, and we've, we did this uh, kind of a similar thing where we looked at chromatin accessibility, which I'll talk about in a second, but kind of like, because you don't know which gene it is, Um, you can kind of look at the the non-coding regions and see how active they are. And there's a couple of different like epigenetic assays you can use to measure activity in a given cell type. And when we do that, we see pretty clearly that the SNPs that are associated with 2ND are more often than you would expect by chance overlapping regions that are active in lymphocytes and yeah, um, and immune cell types. Although, um, so Kyle Galton, who you had on as a as a uh, expert, yeah. He, so his I paper. Yeah, I saw you guys he,
0: use the T1D knowledge base too, or knowledge portal too.
1: Yeah, yeah, we submitted our data there. Um Great. So he, so he, uh, his work kind of showed that that there is some enrichment also for for the islet cell, beta cell um, cell types, or the beta cells although I think the enrichment isn't quite as strong as is if you look at the immune cell population. So, but enrichment isn't everything. So, you you know, you could look at for within a given locus, I think um, it's, it's harder to know. I think you can say like overall, maybe a large portion of genetic risk in T1D is driven by kind of immune factors, but within any given locus, there certainly could be effects on other cell types. So, yeah. Yeah that's one of the challenges with, with this kind of work is you can get kind of like global, like a sense of global trends, but, but then, you know, for any particular region, it's, it's harder to, to nominate causal factors. It
0: also seems like there might be windows of accessibility, or windows of um, activity, right? If so when some genes are enriched or um, downregulated in certain windows in the prodrome leading up to the disease. Uh,
1: yeah, uh, diagnosis. right, right, so most of our like sort of maps of regulatory activity are in, from healthy people, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, right, so there could be, you know, activ- there could be features that are specific to the disease process that we just aren't seeing, so. That's a good
0: well, point. You, you know you have to start you know you're chipping away at a, at a big <laughs> mountain but i mean i think <laughs> this paper shows that you guys have made some excellent progress so
1: yeah not to yeah not to get you off track sorry <laughs> yeah no problem mm-hmm. i mean i think that's a nice thing feature of your series here is that it's sort of more casual and conversational so yeah um, yeah so so, so, the, so that was all sort of background to just motivate what we did here. And so I'll, I'll I know this is meant to be only 30 minutes. So I'll fine.
0: we can, kind of we like can
1: go a little over. It's fine. It's really interesting. <laughs> um, I'll, I'll try and move. Yeah. Relatively efficiently through what we did. So, so our study was kind of building on all that past work that, Laid the kind of foundation and also highlighted some of the challenges of understanding the genetic basis of TND, and D. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so what we used was this. There's something called the immunochip, which is one of those high throughput genotyping arrays, microarray, mm-hmm. um, but it specifically was designed to kind of to to under to identify genetic variants and genetic regions associated with immune mediated diseases. And so they basically took all the GWAS that had been done around in the like first decade of the 21st century for genetic, uh, for immune mediated diseases and took all the top, you know, all the genome-wide regions and kind of, and merged them. So they took the union of all the known immune related traits or immune related regions and designed a chip that really densely genotyped genetic variation in those regions. Who did um, that? So, so it was a consortium. So um, Steve was involved, but, um, and I think Jeffrey Barrett, who uh, from is from the UK, was um, involved. It kind of maybe organized it. Although Steve will know the history of this better than I do, but um, but it was really a, a, a collaborative effort between a bunch of different investigators that had published these kind of first generation GWAS of immune-related traits. That's very cool. So that's one cool thing about the genetics community is there's a lot of collaboration made, I think in part because of it's necessary to get the sample sizes. And, and so the, the collaborative kind of design of this chip also made it more affordable. So um, they were able to purchase many more of these chips than, than they, for their studies, than they would have if they had gone and just bought a commercially available array or certainly more than if they had done whole genome sequencing. So. With this sort of cost-effective, targeted chip that really is enriched, so you know, we I'll show a slide showing this, but we have this kind of idea that if the immune system is mediating effects for uh, mediating all of these autoimmune diseases, there's probably some we call it pleiotropy, where genetic variation affects one trait will also affect another trait. So there's kind of this un- underlying hypothesis that there's be a fair amount of pleiotropy between. The immune-mediated diseases, and so it would be a cost-effective way. You know, a variant that's associated with one trait is kind of has a higher prior, if you put it in like Bayesian statistics terms, higher prior probability that would be associated with T1D. And so, using this cost-effective approach, um, Steve and, and John uh, said about they genotype sixty-five thousand or about sixty-five thousand individuals from a bunch of different studies. And, and we were able to use that data to kind of follow up and, and expand our understanding of the genetic basis of T1D. And so kind of the first thing we did was to do, we call this discovery analysis, where you're just, just trying to nominate regions that, you know, you can statistically feel pretty confident are associated with T1D. And so um, we, we analyzed all of our full data set to do this, and that included both family-based analyses. So we had trios or you had parents and affected children. And we could use certain types of statistical tools to, to, to analyze that data set. And then we also had these cases and controls that were unrelated to each other. Um, and we could use kind of some more standard approaches to analyze those data sets. And we meta-analyze everything together. And it basically gave us a map of the genetic regions associated with TMD. And so this is a classic human genetics plot called a Manhattan plot. And each um, each of these alternating colors represents a human chromosome, so one through 22. And the height of so each point, like I said in the in the previous plots, each point is a genetic variant um, that's that's in the population, and its height on the point on the plot is how significantly it is associated with D. And so you can see the HLA region has the strongest association, as we would expect, and then the insulin region, and then these other kind of known immune-mediated Immune regulators, Um, and then uh, and then there's all these many other regions that are associated. So basically, any point that's above this dotted line here, we would call genome-wide significantly associated with T1D. And so that means that we feel that it's the statistics are sufficiently significant that we we have a we we believe that that is a robust association. And if you were to repeat this whole study, you would be able to replicate that and um, and. And people have shown that that tends to be the case. So, so and and in fact, this study did replicate forty-two out of the forty-three previous regions that have been associated. So, um, so validated. So really them. is the yeah validated them exactly. So, so this kind of like gives us the, the skyline of T1D genetics, and um, and it's kind of where we where we can start. You know, it's sort of like the starting place for trying to understand the genetic basis of the disease. I I would say. Um, and so as you had kind of, we had talked, I had just mentioned that can kind of come up is a lot of these regions, the variant that's associated with T1D is also associated with other immune related traits. And these are, that consortium that was used to design the immunochip uh, was was investigators who had done studies on all of these different diseases here. And this is showing the overlap um, between T1D associations and, and these diseases. And, The red indicates that the variant has the same direction of effect. So, if it increases T1D risk, it also increases the risk of this other disease. And the blue actually indicates that it's the opposite. And so, you can kind of see interesting trends where, like rheumatoid arthritis, all of the variants, um, gray means we couldn't just, we couldn't tell based on the available data. But um, in the regions where we could tell, for rheumatoid arthritis, the variant that causes or increases risk of T1D also increases your risk of rheumatoid arthritis. But interestingly, for Crohn's disease, it seems like it's kind of like 50-50. Sometimes the variant has the same direction effect, sometimes it actually has an opposite direction effect. So there, there could be this, you know, there's pleiotropy, but it's not always it's not, not always contributing in the same way necessarily. And so uh, so we thought that was kind of interesting and it had been previously noted, but but it's always nice to kind of replicate these types of, of observations. Um, and so getting into the the main goal, which was to try and use this data set to um, do a better job of understanding what the causal variants in the region are and, and thus like and thus what the causal genes and mechanisms could be, is we use this algorithm called um, gas FM and I won't go too detailed into this, but basically it's a method for um, kind of using statistics to search all the possible configurations of uh, causal g- genetic variants in a region and come up with the most likely causal variants. And, and there's a couple of different methods to do this, but this is the one we chose to use. And one of the, the the main kind of takeaways from this work, this part of the study was that many, many of the regions have likely more than one causal variant. So um, you can kind of imagine there's a region with maybe one or more important immune or, or, or other genes. So genes in contributing to the disease and there are genetic variation. There's multiple genetic variants that are either both acting in different ways to regulate one of those genes or they could be regulating actually different genes in the same region. So uh, we call this allelic heterogeneity where um, there's, there's multiple um, kind of genetic variations within a region uh, contributing to to a trait. Um, So that seems to be a major feature of T1D genetics. And this was kind of this was replicated by um, Kyle Galton's recent paper as well. They saw the similar kind of trend of a lot of regions with multiple variants contributing. Uh, And that that's an important observation because it kind of affects how you interpret the downstream, um, how you follow up on things. Um, If you wanted to dig into a a region and try and understand the causal variants and their effects on, you would really, you, you want to take that into account. Okay, so the last step, the last part is, um, I guess not quite the last part, second to last part is um, uh, how we try to then co- interpret these uh, likely causal variants We basically come up with sets of variants that we think are most likely causal in the T1D-associated regions. And, and then we tried to use chromatin accessibility data So basically an assay that helps you understand what regions of the genome are really functional and active um, in a cell type, how we tried to use that to understand what these variants could be doing. Um, And so this again addresses the second challenge in kind of the genetic map to molecular mechanism challenge or or, uh, project, (laughs) uh, which is that that most of these variants aren't in protein coding sequences. Um, And so, so the idea is if, if they're not in the protein coding portion of a gene, then, then what are they doing? And um, the it's kind is of a million-dollar question. A <laughs> the, the, the million-dollar question. And, and so people have, sh- you know, we have this understanding that there's these non-coding regions of the genome that, that maybe the formerly junk DNA that, um, that can serve these regulatory roles. And so two of these elements, I'm just kind of showing the general schematic of here's a gene and it's being transcribed into RNA. Um, and right upstream of the gene, right upstream of the transcription start site is there's something called a promoter. And that's non-coding, but it's important, it's regulatory. And then more distally, so more distant from the gene, so it could be up, can be upstream or downstream or in the introns of the genes, there's these elements called enhancers. And there's other types of regulatory elements too, but these are kind of the, probably the best understood ones. Um, and so these non-coding elements are, are what is thought to really um, regulate the expression of genes across different cell times and different time points in, in human development. So um, so basically, we want to, we, so we know that our variants aren't overlapping the protein coding sequence. So we want to understand, are they overlapping these functional, otherwise functional elements that, that could be regulating the protein expression or, or the RNA expression? And so one way to do this is to look at the accessibility of the chromatin, so the the DNA um, at those sites um, for for binding by things like transcription factors. And um, there's a couple of different assays that are used to do this. And we use something called a taxeq, which basically measures the accessibility of the DNA to cutting by enzymes. And that's sort of a proxy for how how accessible it is in the kind of in vivo context for, for transcription factor binding. And other regulatory yeah. functions.
0: Is it, is it unspooled is it open for um, interaction with these factors right right exactly
1: exactly so right so so the dna kind of like dna is always packaged it's not loosely floating around in in the nucleus and it's just a degree uh, uh, an issue or a matter of understanding what degree to what degree is it packaged so you know really tightly packaged dna isn't going to be the genes from those really tightly packaged regions. The, the heterochromatin isn't going to be expressed, and and so if it's really tightly packaged in a given cell type that you know is important to the disease, uh, or 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 or. or or just in a given cell type, it's really tightly packaged, you, you suspect that that variant is probably not having much of an effect on anything because right. it's not really accessible. And so it, it's probably not doing things like affecting the binding of a transcription factor because there's no transcription factors binding there anyway. So um, you can rule out that region. You can, yeah, exactly. You can kind of rule out that, that location as being um, relevant to the, at least to the function of um, cellular processes in that cell type. And so we did this kind of in the context of 2 and D um, by looking at CD4 positive T cells because we saw from other analyses that that seemed like it was probably the most important cell type. Um, and so the idea was we took variants and we showed that we wanted to see their effect on chromatin accessibility, um, and then and then um, their effect on gene expression, and then interpret that in the context of 2 and D. So kind of briefly our study design was we isolated T cells from patient samples, we ran data tax seek on each of the samples, and then we systematically mapped genetic variation to chromatin accessibility. And then we could use some, some additional statistical tools to, to ask the question, is the genetic variant that's affecting chromatin accessibility likely to also be the same variant that's driving the association with TUMD? This is something called co-localization analysis. And, When we did this, we basically identified five regions where we felt confident that, um, or or the data was consistent with the idea that the SNP could be both affecting accessibility and affecting um, the trait, uh, the T1D risk. Um, And so in one of these regions I'm just showing here, this RS116 SNP, it led to less accessibility of this particular region on chromosome 14 and increased risk of T1D. There was no EQTL um, so there's no gene that seemed to be affected by this SNP. So this kind of left a gap in our hypothesis generation. Um, but then we found four other regions where there were, there were um, genes that we were able to kind of nominate as potentially mediating the associations. Um, and, and I'm gonna just end by highlighting one of these genes or one of these regions, which encodes the gene POC2. And so in this region, we had two SNPs that were associated with t d
0: Ah, this. Is, yeah, so
1: that's really interesting. Yeah, so so these two SNPs we felt, based on our statistics, were, were the most likely to be causally related to T1D, and so we wanted to kind of use additional data to, to ask whether one of these is more more functional um, than others, and so we saw that this one on the left overlaps an enhancer, and this one overlaps a transcription start site for the Spock two gene. Which is the transcription factor itself, actually, and we did a couple of different analyses. But in the end, the main conclusion was that this one SNP on the left, which overlaps this T cell enhancer um, enhancer element, appears to lead to decreased ex- uh, accessibility of, of that enhancer and also decreased expression of this boc 2 transcription factor. So um, across all these uh, cell types, yeah. So so the effect appears to be relatively specific to T cells. So, so that kind of, this is just showing that we did some additional analyses to kind of verify that all these, that the effects were all kind of mediated by the same causal factor. Um, and so, yeah, so, so so actually the effect seems to be specific to T-cells, and so that kind of led to this hypothesis that we formulated where we felt, and this is this is supported by a couple of other analyses, but I didn't really want, I didn't have time to show everything, but um, the idea is that the The hypothesis is that the SNP leads to less binding by a transcription factor at that enhancer in T cells, and then that leads to less expression of this boc 2 gene in T cells, and that that may be the the feature that that mediates the the association with T and D, and and so this kind of hypothesis. Oh, just to qualify, sorry, maybe I missed this. This is just in CD8s and CD4s? Yeah, I think the effect is seen in CD8 and CD4. It's interestingly kind of um, specific to unstimulated cells. So there's a lot of people have done um, a lot of these types of assays in, so if you take either CD4 or CD8 cells isolated from primary cells isolated from from individuals, um, and then you stimulate them, for example, through the T cell receptor signaling pathway, You can kind of you can see oftentimes changes in the chromatin accessibility and in the gene expression patterns, right? Which is basically they
0: have to gear up, you know, for their doing their exactly. They
1: have a lot to do, (laughs) Um, and so uh, so you can kind of you can then actually ask, does the SNP affect the expression of the gene or the accessibility of the chromatin um, in the stimulated state versus the unstimulated state? And so when you do that, you see that the SNP appears to affect the expression in the unstimulated state. And also, you know, the, the chromatin at this, at this location appears to only be accessible in the, in the unstimulated state. So there's something about stimulation that kind of shuts down this enhancer element, it seems. Mm. Um, so, that, so that's also interesting because it, it could help um, guide additional experiments to try and understand really more precisely how this variant functions. or develop more precision medications. Um, Yeah I think that that feels further down the road but yes I mean I think ultimately trying to understand all these these details of of like the context will be really important to understand um, how they could be um, applied to 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 developing therapies. Right so yeah so this kind of hypothesis is the it's really the goal, like I think in, in the ideal world, the goal would be to have hypotheses like that for all regions. Um, and so there's been, you know, in recent years, there's been some additional, some some new me- methods coming out using CRISPR and, and single cell tools that may allow us to kind of more efficiently I- identify these types of hypotheses for, for many regions. So, you know, if there's, if we have a hundred regions, let's say that are, really important for T1D risk. If we could really, if we could understand and develop hypotheses and then test them um, systematically for for many of these regions, then we may, that may kind of move us towards a realm where all of this information is useful to, to understanding the disease, the basis of the disease in a specific individual. And so actually, yeah, let me, um, I'll just quickly, you know, work basically at time. Um, but I'll okay. just quickly. I, I mean, again, I'd
0: I'd rather you know kind of uh, see these data um, as part of this than than just clip it. So sure, <laughs> you, clip it. Okay, we can if yeah. So can go off if they have time if they need to go. But I'd like okay. To, I'd love to be able to share this with
1: the wider audience. Okay, great. Well, so then I'll I'll finish on a, like a brief kind of discussion of applications because I did remember some of the speakers kind of saying, how do you think about this? Like, how do we think about a trait that is affected by, you know, dozens or hundreds even genetic regions? How do we think about that in terms of a specific individual and even and treatment and therapy? So um, so the first thing I think to acknowledge is that in recent years, genetic risk prediction for T1D has become useful. Um, and uh, And this is actually not from my work. This is from... Um, Seth Sharp, who was a PhD student at Exeter, and um, I think will now be a postdoc with Anna Gloin at Stanford. Very nice. So he has done a lot of of great work um, from Richard Oram's group actually, uh, kind of showing that if you use some more sophisticated modeling approaches and these larger data sets, and I I think it'll be interesting to see if he's able to use our our recently published data to kind of further improve this, same with, um, with Kyle Galton's data that you can do a really pretty good job um, predicting T1D risk um, just based on DNA sequence alone. And that's really not the case for most other complex common diseases. And this is a, in large part due to the HLA factor. So the HLA risk is, is really, has a really strong effect on T1D, but also, um, but also could be other features of the genetic architecture. But, but the great thing about this is it could be useful
0: yeah. I mean, do you think these data could actually be used in the clinic? So in, you know, some kind of like, you know, like the baby, an infant has a heel stick, you know, the blood is taken and it's, it's, it's tested for a variety of different things, you know, ultimately could this be one of them uh, A risk particular, yeah. and then, you know, that's, a, that's a, a patient who's followed more closely, maybe has access to, you know,
1: right. offerings
0: of prevention bio, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm not a clinician. So I hesitate to comment too strongly. But I think so one thing is that it is true that, you know, genetics isn't the only thing. So it will never be perfect. The prediction with genetics will never be diagnostic or, um, you know, it will never diagnose someone with certainty. But Mm. I think it could help to stratify people. And like you said, help to identify people early that perhaps should be followed a little bit more closely. There have been studies, research studies that have leveraged genetics, not not these genetic risk scores, but um, leveraged HLA genetics to identify higher risk people. And actually Steve and the group at UVA has done a pilot kind of screening program in, UV, at U, in Virginia, uh, using genetic risk prediction to identify higher risk um, children from a very young age, because you can do this from birth, like you said. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think, I don't know, we may be a ways from using it actually in the clinic, but certainly for um, research purposes. And I think, so what I'll, I'll just say, so the value I think is that you can, you can predict someone's risk well before they have uh, clinical symptoms. And, and if, you, if you use that to then kind of screen people with more um, precise or specific um, and sensitive approaches, for example, using autoantibody testing, then you can identify people in this like pre-symptomatic window, as it has been done in some clinical trials. And um, and that could really be useful. So so I, I just want, I mean, so other people have way more expertise in this than I do, but just highlight the, that there have been these kind of prevention trials. Um, and and it seems like this Teplizumab study kind of highlighted and the history of it highlighted that the timing of the administration does matter because were previous studies where they were were giving this drug after diagnosis and it and the effect was not as pronounced so I think using you know using genetics in addition to other factors um, so Seth Sharp and colleagues so so their group has also published work kind of integrating the genetic risk scores with other um, kind of demographic features that and and that further increases the predictive uh, uh, ability of the of the modeling so I think kind of like bringing everything to bear and doing a good job of prediction can may facilitate these kinds of studies. So you don't have to have quite as large of enrollment to um, or larger enrollment for monitoring um, to accrue um, sufficient sample sizes for uh, a well-powered clinical trial.
0: Definitely a great way to target, um, you know, those who can
1: benefit the most. Exactly, and I think, um, and then kind of moving from how can the genetics actually not just predict, but help to inform the strategy for the preventive therapy that might be tested in a tr- clinical trial. So this is a kind of framework that was pub- published by um, Amit Kara and Saig kitha are They're, they're cardio- cardiologists, um, and they, they've kind of been leading the way in terms of using genetics, you know, the genetics of complex traits and in particular cardiovascular disease in clinical settings. And they kind of highlighted this that there's this has historically, this kind of idea that a, that a person may have a disease driven by a particular um, pathway or process or causal factor, like a single factor. But then, um, and then there's this alternative kind of framework where somebody could, could have a disease that's driven by this sort of quantitative blend of causal factors. And, and they, they hypothesized that probably for most people, at least for a trait like cardiovascular disease, and I think 2 and d could be similar, um, you're going to have not this single pathway that's important, but actually this sort of blend. And so we may eventually be able to use um, some of these genetic risk prediction um, tools or these genetic profiling tools, not just to predict someone's risk of disease, but also to get a sense of where they fall in the spectrum. Because I think a lot of things suggest like for example the failure of the nod mouse to help us identify effective therapies that that is probably a pretty heterogeneous disease so there are probably people for whom the beta cell uh beta cell intrinsic factors are more important than than for other people and so perhaps you know if we can be if we can get more efficient at mapping genetic variant or associations to causal variants in genes, we may eventually be able to use these sort of genome-wide profiles to get us, get us a sense of the blend of pathways that are um, most important for disease in a given individual. And so yeah, and you know, that's pretty futuristic, but well, I think that- I think it's talking about personalized medicine, which I think is
0: you know really on everyone's mind in a yeah. larger realm, right? In clinical space, like, okay, you cannot just treat everybody
1: the same. Yeah, exactly. And I think even before before you get to the kind of clinical implementation for the general population, even in a trial, you might not expect everyone to respond to a treatment equally. So if we can do a better job at like kind of matching the people to the either immune media, you know, immune modulating therapy or, or could be, you know, a beta cell protective factor or something, um, then, then, then that will probably lead to more successful trials and get therapies to people faster. So, yeah. um, For those
0: that think the GWAS people and the genetics people, you know, like I've, I've heard on the street, oh, well, what is, you know, what does genetics bring to bear and how do they, really bring things to clinic. I mean you just hit the nail on the head. This is exactly what needs to happen is the full characterization of different subpopulations and individuals, even if you you know if we can get to there. And then addressing those with the different um, you know with the best drug for that profile. It's really yeah. it's definitely yeah. the, the, the best way forward. I agree.
1: Yeah. And I think this has already sort of already been done in the context of like monogenic diabetes, which is not—I would say it's not T1D—but yeah. um, you know, people. I guess um, my understanding is there has been some success, for example, at at identifying people with MODY and not treating them with things that won't won't work. <laughs> um, and so that's like kind of uh, you know, I think ideally we'll get that get that way get get to that point with the more complex forms of the disease. Um, and it might, you know, may take some time and I think it will really depend on our ability to get better and more efficient at the molecular side of things because um, you know, to, to map a genetic variant to a to kind of like a pathway or uh, to a set, you know, cell major cell type driving the disease process, we need to be be more efficient at trying to understand what the causal variants of genes are. so but there’s a lot of people working on that question and not just people in T1D. so the whole field of of human genetics. There's a, there's a lot of people across the field that are interested in this question and major grant funding mechanisms to try and encourage that work. So I'm optimistic that, that will there will be a lot of progress in that area. Um, and so I guess I'll just, I'll finish five minutes, <laughs> five minutes over. Um, no worries. But, uh, and just thank everybody who, so these are all the people at UVA who mentored me and also contributed to the data generation and then these are all the people at University of Oxford that were really involved in this project. And again, Jamie and Sean. And then these are all the people and studies that contributed samples. So, you know, more than 65,000 people contributed DNA to, these, to this study, which is pretty Im- remarkable. And I'm always just grateful to those people for willing being willing to do that because I'm sure it's, you know, if nothing else, an inconvenience. Um, so, so these types of large scale studies really rely on people being um, engaged with the research community, so.
0: Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And who, did uh, T1D Exchange facilitate any of these, uh, the access to these uh, samples or how did you guys access the Um, sample data? Was it just kind of an out one by one, you put it together, the lab put it together?
1: Yeah, so I was not, this predated my arrival. Um, Steve is the, I think, you know he's very, very talented at this uh, type wow. of work. So I don't know if he's he's amazing. In, but he may be able to comment on how exactly all this data came together. I think it was largely just one at a time collaborating with people he's worked with over the years.
0: The tremendous but, effort he's done. All, yeah. he's done so much in the field. So. It's, uh, yeah. Thank you, Steve. If you're here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. On mute. On mute. Yeah. Anyway, yeah, so that, that this is really interesting. This is a huge amount of you know samples. Thank you, Cassie. This was so uh, interesting and fascinating work. Um, you guys have accomplished quite a bit here, and so so cool to see that this sort of you know to gene has been um, you know identified and 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 interesting to see what what else uh, is found around you know its its um, functionality. So. Um, thanks again and and good luck at Michigan you're in for if you're heading there soon you're in for shock from a Virginia winter (laughs) to Michigan but I'm sure you'll do great things there and we'll keep an eye on you and and hope to see you again yeah great
1: thank you so much thanks again congrats